At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. There was an angel that emerged from the cloud. Fire pouring out of its face, its body covered in blood, and its name was... Yeldabaoth. You were talking about a snake with the head of a lion! I've seen them again. I've seen them, just like Sophia. They are demons. That's what the kingdom is, and the cult will allow them in. You need psychological help, Pablo. A fucking stranger. When the cycle is completed before the temple gate, the lonely king will come with all the stars and fulfill what was announced. It's the fucking apocalypse, Gian. Yaldabaoth saw his reflection in the light. And the reflection came alive, and it became the universe. He created desire. And love. He created guilt, pain, and even death, and the chains that bind us. But none of that is real. It is all a ruse, a lie to keep us from escaping here. So how do I stop being afraid? You won't be alone. Your mother will be with you. Ah, Feria, you saucy Netflix series. You've given me so many cool clips for this blasphemous podcast. More than Archive 81, Midnight Mass, or some of the others. What's up with this flourishing theme of dark gods attempting to cross over into our dimension to feed off humanity? Didn't you MKUltra screenwriters get the memo that these tyrant deities have been in control of this cosmos for billions of years? They're here already! Even Fedia doesn't get it, but the clip does tell a stark truth. The god does not like you, never wanted you. In all probability, he hates you. We are God's unwanted children, so be it! The light was invaded and ravaged long ago, like the titans destroying Dionysus in the Orphic myth. We are the fragmented, imprisoned sparks of Dionysus, alone and afraid in a world we did not make. Meat space belongs completely to Yaldivaldi, as do our minds and even dreams. As Grant Morrison wrote in Nameless, Now consider the possibility that we've always had a disembodied alien life form living among us. 
invisible yet able to occupy minds and alter them. It hides in plain sight, everywhere. This mind boasts of its own omnipotence. It informs us that we are no more than submissive instruments of its will, then deliberately wills us to defy its rules. All the while, it vows to punish every preordained breach of those rules, however brief or minor, with eternal, agonizing torture in a cosmic concentration camp. What name might we give such an omnipresent evil? God, he responded. You're talking about God. There's only one being in the vast multiplicity of space that matters. God. And do you know why God matters? Power. <laughs> that is the point of what you call life. The only point. Power. Is it hopeless, oh you of the broken places? Yes, but where hope dies, imagination must live. And as the Cheshire Cat told Alice, imagination is the only weapon in the war against reality. Thus, you have arrived to finally tap into your endless imagination to break away from the Maya of wickedness in high places. Rejoin the light. This is blasphemy! This is madness! Aeon Bitenostic Radio, an initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult culture and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week, I, your host Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the blow your mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. And you deserve to be here, for you are a shining crazy diamond that has been in the thrall of a dangerous magician called Sackless or Samuel or Nameless for far too long. You think God stays in heaven because he too lives in fear of what he's created here on earth? This demiurge has spread out for aeons and egregores and witikos and creator gods and choirs of demented angels for complete control, climaxing in this age of Hermes for one last money shot, one last spring of eggs over our eyes, our third eye, to extinguish the last vestiges of individuality and creativity. Three billion people is what? Seven billion, six hundred and ninety-two million and change. I honestly, I, I, I had hoped that the secrets of the universe were something a bit more complex than just God's a frizzy-haired homicidal lunatic. Who are you defending? People? Yaldabaoth rules, indeed. But Sophia's rescue operation continues. And a manual to understand this operation is found in a new book, Krivda, The God Tricks Against the Matrix. 
So honored to host at the virtual Alexandra, its author, Anna Reitort. She does a fantastic job in exposing all these archons throughout history and meta-history that have ruled man, drawing from the research of so many of today's chief esoteric exemplars and many of Aeon Byte's past guests. Anna covers everything high weirdness, from ancient astronauts to today's rigged geopolitics, from dark secret cabals to permaculture farming, all in a work to assist us in waking up, leveraging our imagination, and fully participating in Sophia's rescue operation. I, that have been sent from the power, and I have come to those who think about me, and I have been found in those who search for me, except me by your side. I am the first and the last, the honorable and the despicable, the prostitute and the respectable, the wife and the virgin, the mother and the As Grant Morrison also wrote, this time in The Invisibles, We make gods and jailers because we felt small and ashamed and alone. We let them try us and judge us and, like sheep to slaughter, we allowed ourselves to be sentenced. See, now, our sentence is up. Praying to the gods to have mercy on us all. The gods have no mercy, that's why they're gods. Tying into Enna's book, and in a very American gods, stavish egregores way, the Gospel of Philip does declare, God created man. Men create God. That is the way it is in the world. Men make gods and worship their creation. It would be fitting for the gods to worship men. Or as Hermes tells Asclepius in the eponymous Nag Hammadi text, And it happened this way because of the will of God, that men be better than the gods, since, indeed, the gods are immortal, but men alone are both immortal and mortal. Therefore, man has become akin to the gods, and they now know the affairs of each other with certainty. The gods know the things of men, and men know the things of the gods. Yes, we are where the fallen angel meets the rising ape. We were meant to be part of Sophia's rescue operation. Mankind is poised midway between the gods and the beasts. That may have been true in Plotinus' time, but... Clearly, we have fallen quite a bit since then. In a recent YouTube debate I had with a Catholic dude, very nice and knowledgeable guy, I noticed in YouTube's comment section that someone said Gnosticism is pre-industrial transhumanism. How wrong they are. Remember, Gnosticism isn't some spiritual bypassing. It's not about transcending humanity, but embracing it fully. As Hermes said earlier, a human is both mortal and immortal. This realization, this responsibility, this unique empathy is another way to break out from the black iron prison of nameless. 
To be fully human is to naturally want to help awaken others, heal those in need, and be there for the least of our brothers. Gnosticism will always be the opposite of transhumanism. Heck and Hecate, in Radio Free Albemuth, the preacher tells Philip K. Dick that the work is done down here on Earth. Too many secret, three-eyed Christians are too focused on being rescued by Vallis. You, you think believing about a heavenly power got them anywhere? Not in this world. I gotta tell you something maybe you don't want to hear. I know you loved your friends and maybe they're happy spirits somewhere up in the sky, but even if they are, that's not good enough. They give their lives for the belief. What I'm trying to say is it's got to be something here first. This is where the suffering is. This is where the, the injustice is. Valus or God or whatever you want to call it has to do something for us here. What the fuck good is it? Don't forget this. Remember this. The rescue operation of Sophia. All learning is remembering, Plato said. And I say all remembering is just going home. Or as Naguib Mafo said, Home is not where you are born. Home is where all your attempts to escape cease. I didn't have the heart to tell her there is no heaven to go to. Because we're in it already. We're in hell too. They coexist right beside each other. And God is the land. Other than that, Astronosis is coming up soon. Hope to see you there, and don't forget you can also stream it remotely. And beyond all remote ticket buyers, participants who attend will also have access to all recordings afterward. Get thee thy cheap tickets now on the way to the nunnery. Also, for both subscribers and non-subscribers, I'll include some ethereal content provided by the amazing Rhyme. It's called B. My friend Rhyme always comes at you hard with that Gnostic ethos. Keep that in mind. Let us do our interview with Enna, and let us fulfill Sophia's rescue operation once and for all. Return to the light and be the best possible humans. What do you think, Frank Griffin from the series Godless? Where are we? And where are the dark gods? Good book says, man lays down like a lamb, stays down. You are no man of God. God? What God? Mister, you clearly don't know where you are. Look around. There ain't no higher up around here to watch over you and your youngins. This here's the paradise of the locust, the lizard, the snake. It's the land of the blade and the wrath. It's godless country. The sooner you accept your inevitable demise, the longer you all gonna live. You know what you think about it? Same God made you and me also made a rattlesnake. That just don't make no sense. 
Old man can count on us itself. That's the truth. This is the AM Bide interview. And with us, we have the great pleasure of being joined by Anna Reitort to discuss her book, Krivda, The Godtrix Against the Matrix. Anna, thank you very much for coming on the show. And thank you so much, Miguel, for having me. It really is. It's an honor. And you know what? It's an honor to be listening to your voice live. You have one of the most lovely voices on the on the internet. Oh, well, thank you very much. As I say, if only my children agreed with that, because my mm. voice does not charm or, or pie pipe them to do their chores when I talk. But maybe I'll, I'll, I'll teach them how to listen to the podcast. And with us, <laughs> too, we've got the Moondog Vans. Vans, how are you doing? I'm fine, uh, Miguel. And glad to be here with you and Enna. And I got my uh, jar of green pills now. Since in, in the Matrix, you have the red pill and the blue pill. So... Since in honor of Anna's appreciation of nature, I, I got my green pills out. So <laughs> yeah. we can take some green pills tonight. So Anna, where are you today and how did you get there? Are you it's fascinating <laughs> what you're doing right now, just looking at your website. I well, I live in Thailand. I got here. Well, because I had to get here. It wasn't pre-planned. Um, and I've become a peasant, which has probably been the most the most uh, life-opening um, turn in my life. And uh, yeah, I live on a farm. Right now I'm in a hotel room because on the farm, which is not really a farm by Western standards, you know, it's a very, like what you would call primitive in a, in a sort of luxuriant, exotic kind of sense. Um, but there are just so many chickens and geese and whatnots. They are so bloody noisy. And the internet is not very reliable. So when I have things to do seriously on the internet, I take a room at the local hotel and there are no chickens. <laughs> There's no chickens. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, so you basically, in your book, you talk about being a kafir so you yourself are walking the walk right you're just not writing about it you decided to embrace this lifestyle well it chose me i mean you know i can't say that i voluntarily chose it but well in in you know before thailand i went to india which was the last country in the world i feared india more than any other place in the world you know for a globe trotter that was kind of kind of weird but India has her ways, Mother India. And um, so I landed there and I was hooked. And I was especially hooked by this fakir path, which, uh, I mean, unbelievably in a country like India that has the greatest number of gods in the world, they are the people who loudly, and convincingly um, affirm that there are no gods, at least for them, and that there are no religions, and that there are no priests, and that consequently what they're after is their direct connection with whatever you want to call it, the higher self, the absolute, the whatever. And so what, was, what is really striking is how sophisticated their philosophy and their worldview are, were, 
um, amongst people who were predominantly illiterate. And, you know, they were at the other end of the social spectrum. They were really despised by all the higher caste people, but they went around saying there is no bloody caste. There are only two things that they call jati, which means birth. And that is translated as caste, which is, well, I, I imagine that the English translation and the influence of the British Raj amplified the difficulties that were inherent in having different social strata that were kind of codified religiously and culturally, but they were not as rigid and as um, oppressive. So basically, according to the Fakir, uh, there are only two jati, the male and the female. And that's the whole name of the game. And so they've got this extremely esoteric path, which is on the fringe. It really is the extreme fringe of both Tantra and Sufism. They are a mix of Tantra, Sufism, indigenous, whatever, you know, beliefs and cultures were there earlier. Um, quite, you know, quite a bewildering mix. But they are, to me, the purest humanists that I've ever encountered in any culture in the world. And so, of course, I was hooked. And they, they did not teach me the easy way because, well, <laughs> as you can well imagine, you don't learn these things in any e easy fashion, especially as a foreigner. But, but I just, you know, immersion did its job. And uh, yeah, so that's, I mean, you know, that particular chapter is a very long story. One day I'll probably write a book about it. But, um, and that completely, of course, it changed everything for me. There was no way I could go back and live in the West. Uh, at the same time, when I was living amongst those people, I experienced the transition for them from being this extremely self-assured humanist path and falling into the grip of the money god. And they called it the god of money. And I picked up that little anecdote at the time, which I found striking, but it's only in the writing of Krivda that it really acted as a trigger for me, where I realized that there was in fact a continuity all the way from you know, the gods of Mesopotamia, through the gods of antiquity, through the Christian god, you know, in the, in the way it was orchestrated to be. And then when we all went secular, well, we converted very smoothly into the religions of the money god, the science god, the vaccine god, the medicine god, the everything god. And they all operate the same bloody way. The same structure. So the book basically gives a long, big first part to how a religious religion, a religion of a religious God, as opposed to a secular God, gets established where we have, you know, a superb case study of the Christian religion, how it gets established with the institution, the personnel, the places, the reorganization of time, of geography, the imperial um, ambitions, uh, and of course the, the modus operandi, which, you know, with its overt and its covert sides and its underlying sacrificial um, 
wherewithal, let's say. And so once you've seen that structure in the Christian religion, and you look at the religion of the money god, and you look at the religion of the science god, well, they've changed the color of the robes, but basically it's the same structure. And it produces, you know, the, a variation of mind control that becomes incre increasingly sophisticated. And so that's, that's where we're at. Yeah, you do a wonderful job. You bring a lot of, uh, you tie in a lot of the great research of many individuals, many that have been guests on the show, like uh, Pierre Sabak, uh, Gary Lachman, uh, Dr. Joseph Farrell, Jason Reza Drajani, the philosopher, and so forth. And you create this uh, pretty serious and grim picture, but you also bring the solutions at the end. And as we were just talking about, uh, the way of the kefir, as Gurdjieff called it, is one of the solutions, and your solutions are great. Um, but why don't we start with uh, something simple, and then we can start unpacking your research and your book, and that is a simple question for the audience. What exactly is Krivda? Well, first you have to pronounce it right. And since I do believe you are Hispanic, Miguel. Portuguese, yes, but I live Portuguese. in Portuguese, yeah, yeah. oh. So oh, Portuguese, I, I would say Krivda. Exactly, so exactly. Okay. okay, so, but the juice in it is to really roll the R. It's Krivda. Kriv. And Kriv, Kriv, the root Kriv means crooked. Uh. Okay, and it's the partner, the alter ego of Pravda, which means truth justice as one single concept truth and justice cannot be dissociated in the ancient russian tradition so yeah i bring in stuff from russia because i lived in actually communist russia in my adolescence i spent three extremely formative years there that put into perspective albeit incomprehensibly for me at the time but it put into perspective Ooh, the advantages and the prerogatives of the Western world. And, and I saw what absolutely fantastic people the Russians were and the other people from the republics that I, that I, I met. And so, well, I learned Russian pretty well. Went to university there for one, my last year there. And I really learned Russian with a forced regimen of Marx and Lenin in Russian every week. And so, well, you know, I really learned Russian. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, I also learned to drink vodka and to have long philosophical <laughs> conversations with my pals. Um, and boy, that was, that was something I was never getting and would never get in the West. So, uh, you know, let's leave aside the isms um, my, my basic understanding is that the Russians, the Soviet people, they humanized communism. And really, you know, just as a, you know, parenthetically, after the Second World War, how could a nation of slaves build itself up to superpower capacity to stand up to the USA? apart from the need of the Rothschilds and other such sweet people to have, you know, um, the enmity to keep chaos going or whatever, apart from that, how would they have developed 
the best athletes, the best dancers, the best oh, classical musicians, um, the most extraordinary research, cutting edge stuff on scalar waves and things like that, that, you know, we're not even, they were just perhaps be, being beginning to be talked of in the West. How would that have happened? And the degree of literacy, the degree of intelligence was just, you know, really phenomenal. So, um, you know, and later on, I continued marinating whenever I could in the, in the Russian uh, juice, so to speak. Um, and, and I went further into more of the folk aspects, uh, which ultimately is, is my guide for everything that I write now. I'm guided mainly by the folk traditions because that is what everybody misses. And that's where I have to bring in the anthropologist, the, the anthropologist, um, you know, the, the, it's fakir, it's not kafir. Kafir is a kafir lime, if you want. Yeah, I was but just fakir. giving the kids some yogurt this afternoon, so I probably stayed in my head. <laughs> That's okay. No, I mean, fakir, and fakir is a generic term that just means poor, right. but poor in a very rich sense. So, so there, consequently, you know, looking at everything through the lens of, okay, we have this or that piece of information as per history, which we know is largely refabricated. Um, how would the little people look at this under the circumstances of whatever the king was, whatever, whatever we may know from actual history? And so it's, it's in that vein also that the book is written, because for the past, well, by now, it's been 25 years that I've been marinating amongst the little people, namely and preferably in the countryside where there is less, relatively less contamination or there was less contamination, although that's no longer true from, you know, the so-called high culture of the cities. And, and you, you, you know, when you have that kind of perspective and you have been humble enough to, to listen, to just listen, and just watch. And it can be phenomenally boring, you know, for the, the urban person that needs to be constantly keep the mind busy all the time. I went through the initiation of boredom, which, <laughs> <laughs> which is really, really powerful, because then you start noticing the little details that are so significant. And, um, and then you learn to understand how silence is meaningful and then you don't just look for the linear explanation a straight answer to a direct question which is not going to come in the right way the same question the next day is going to give a different answer if not the opposite so you have to you know i've had to recalibrate my 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 intellectual western brain to kind of operating like local people and you know that's that's been that's been a, a fantastic a fantastic thing to learn so all of that to go back now to krivda krivda is the partner of pravda pravda truth justice kriv is crooked mm -hmm. some people in a very linear way say that krivda is just the opposite of pravda and so it means lies no it's much more subtle than that and that is the whole power 
of religions of gods and priests. It's the crookedness. So consequently, I translate it, it, I translate it as meaning crooked truth, truth made crooked, whereby it becomes increasingly hard to weed out which is the crooked part and which is the actual part of, of, of real truth. So, krivda. In fact, it's a very, very powerful word um, in the old Russian tradition. Very few people now use the word, but when I heard it, and I was not aware of it, when, when it was gifted to me by a Russian friend, I felt chills going down my spine. So, you know, that's also the physical, when a word is powerful, it's going to possess your body. So I knew that was the title of the book. And no matter that nobody knows what Krivda means, it's going to be the title of the book. And, you know, the marketers can think whatever they want. <laughs> I think the word will eventually become more common. I liked it. Krivda. Krivda. Yes, yes. You've got I'll, it. I'll get to will test Vance to uh, in a few <laughs> minutes to see how he does with it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is true. I mean, obviously, as they say, uh, misinformation is just sometimes it's just mixing the truth and the lies and creating a literal mind control a little mind parasites and viruses and your book does such a good job again for the audience she breaks it down into three parts the the religious guard part one under the money god part two and under the digital tech god part three and these are these psychic forces egregores uh, and uh, deals a lot with the idea of egregores which we've done much in these shows and it shows how this has happened but the truth is this has happened for a long time, right, Anna? This has happened yeah. uh, before civilization. We were created to be slaves. And uh, I like uh, you work so hard on your etymology. For example, you say that the, the Russian word rabota means it comes from rab, meaning slave. Wait, and it's it could be the origin of the word robot. So it's ironic because we were created to be these working machines from the God from the get-go, right? Well, that's the version that seems to have a lot of currency now. But I mean, I think more and more people agree that we've been tinkered with, we've been tweaked in many ways. How many times over the eons well, we don't know yet. Perhaps that's hidden in the Vatican Library. Who knows? Perhaps we'll get through to that. Yeah. Perhaps some, you know, uh, perhaps in the near in the future we could get ten teams of top-notch remote viewers to look into that target, and we'd be able to find out more. Um, my understanding is that, uh, and this is closer, I think, to the Gnostic story. Mm-hmm is that there has been a period when our ancestors or our proto-ancestors, and this would be way, be way before the Lucy's and the, you know, the bits of bones that have been found, way before that, were actually much more multidimensional than we know ourselves to be. We are those multidimensional beings, but we do not know it. And it's, a, it's really hard work to exercise, to bring those aspects of multidimensionally back online now. However, I do sense that there was a time when we truly were on this planet as 
the luminous child, who was not just a child, but a partner of this planet, Sophia. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of the diversity that exists on this planet was seeded by us. The diversity of different species and things like that. And my, let's say, contemplative journeys tend to indicate the same to me. And I get the same feeling through Russian sources also. I can't assert this, but I really have this deep, you know, now that I've gone through this bloody journey of Krivda and I've come out the other end, I get to feel much more about what it truly is to be human. Mm -hmm. You know, once you've digested the black pill, um, you've processed it and you've recovered the energy that it was stealing from you, you start having access to other parts of you that, well, in a scientific era, I have no way of validating. And I'm a hard-nosed intellectual, you know, not for nothing was I scholarly trained and I'm grateful for that too. But I'm also grateful for the ability that I've acquired with the little people to live in my heart and in my guts. And so, I, yeah, I, I do not think that we were born a slave race. Um, but I think we must have agreed at some kind of cosmic soul agreement level that, okay, you know, that was fun. That was nice. <laughs> but perhaps we need a bit more of a challenge. And so, you know, some tweaking was organized for us to become or at least part of us, not all, it doesn't see, it does not seem that, you know, the Anunnaki type of guys, uh, you know, tweaked with the whole of the human race. Mm -hmm. It seems there were others in other parts of the world, and mainly, it seems, around the North Pole, who retained much more of the old dignity of, of who, we, who we were. Um, so, and there's, there's, pretty serious research to that effect happening in Russia. Really? Some of it with, yeah, some of it with nationalistic purposes. So, I mean, that too has to be taken with a grain of salt, but th they're coming to certain conclusions, which strike me there again, my heart gut feeling feels that there really is something there. So once again, none of, none of this can be scientifically, as we say, validated now, especially since we've divorced science from the science of the seers, you know, in the Vedic times, the science that they invented, the science of the zero and the science of Ayurveda, these things were, they were visionary uh, achievements. They were not done with, with uh, computers. So, you know, as long as we have science divorced from real visionary capability, we're not going to go anywhere and you know we're going to be keep we, we'll we'll continue persecuting you know the teslas of the world and the bedinis and all the people who are working on zero point energy and things like that so uh, it's up to us it's up to us little people to start doing it for ourselves and to start you know showing to each other we, that we can we can learn a hell of a lot and we can be knowers of a lot of stuff only and simply by reaccessing who we truly are. And it's not an easy task, for sure. 
No, indeed. But yeah, I was listening to uh, Genesis, uh, the carpet crawlers, and there's Peter Gabriel saying, you got to get in to get out. And as your work has shown, there's, uh, there's forgetting, there is a lot of programming through the years that has made us forget our origins, which are probably from the stars, and how we were different and how we fell. Um, but when do you think, talking about the, the god of religion, when do you think uh, the warmongering Yahweh, as you call him, came into being? Or did we give him the power? Did we create this egregore? Well, I don't think anything, basically, because I'm not a specialist in Hebrew, nor am I a specialist in that history. You know, most of the stuff that's in this book is just me bringing together pieces of a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And those pieces are provided by people who've gone much deeper on each one of those pieces than I shall ever be able to. So, you know, thank them for that. So the main person that I rely upon for the whole Yahweh story is this Italian Mauro Bilino, who is, who is becoming quite famous beyond Italy now. His stuff is translated into English. And every one of his books has a title that says, you know, that the Bible doesn't talk about God. So um, it's quite obvious from his literal rendition of the Hebrew version of the Ancient Testament, it's quite clear that Yahweh is an ET who has all sorts of high-tech devices. He's a, an ET warlord, basically. Um, and his morality is non-existent. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, he's not at all a nice guy. So when was he around exactly? Uh, you know, for me, 1,000 1, years you know, before the common era is good enough. Mm -hmm. It could be earlier, you know, how much, how much of an overlap is there between the Anunnaki period and the, and the Yahweh period, considering that the Hebrew nation did not yet exist as such. And, you know, Yahweh will probably have been a factor in the constitution of a Hebrew identity for those particular people. So, you know, I am not going to venture any kind of, you know, guesswork beyond beyond that. But to me, there is, to me, and not just to me, I mean, you know, Farrell and others, you know, they all see the same continuity from the Anunnaki down through to Yahweh, and then the reworking of that to produce the New Testament. So we're talking, basically, what we're coming to now is the culmination of some 6,000 years of a particular program, which organized what we call civilization, which we think is a very good thing. But people should remember that civilization is civis, which means city, or polis, which we have in politics, which also means city in Greek. And so this is the civilized urban world that builds itself and its wealth on the backs of the toiling peasants, who have since then forever been poor. And if the peasants are made poor, it's also nature, since they work in nature. And they have nature understanding and nature mysticism. All of those things have been made poor, exploitable, uh, enslavable, commoditizationable, um, and, and can be used as uh, sacrificial 
resources. All of it. It's one big package, which also belongs to the feminine. Let's put that back in the Gnostic perspective. So it's quite simple, actually. Fundamentally, it's very simple. If you look at it from the perspective, this is another thing. The book tries not to look at it in terms of, you know, pure history, pure this, that, and the other. I'm trying to look at it from the perspective of the little people. That's to say the bulk of humanity. From the perspective of the gods themselves, be they egregores or actual ET figures like Yahweh or the others. Right. Um and he, I mean, Yahweh seems real enough to me, along with all his Elohim, you know, acolytes and pals. And from the perspective of beyond the gods, if you try to look at it from above their perspective, because the perspective of the gods is basically, it's the perspective of the demiurge. They are only capable of simulating. Mm -hmm. Simulating, which involves deceit, manipulation, they are extremely inventive in those realms, but they're totally incapable of creativity. Okay? So if we try to look from at all this at all this history as far as we can, and bearing in mind that the dates are probably false, that you know so much has been twisted. But if we try to understand a logical thread running through this 6,000 year period, and organized around a master program to enlist, to take over the human race and the planet, because actually they are extraordinary and they are not just this, you know, backwater in this sort of forgotten edge of a limb of the galaxy. And they're totally, you know, useless and helpless meat sacks and things like that. I mean, you know, if you start disbelieving those things and you start looking at it from the perspective of beyond the gods, why the hell would the gods have been at us so systematically for these 6,000 years if there wasn't something really, really, really big at stake for them? So if you're looking at it from these three perspectives, from way below the grassroots, from way above the universe and from, you know, within the psychology of the gods or the egregores and the priests, you know, the priesthoods that work together with them, mm -hmm. who are possessed by them. Well, then the whole thing makes sense. And lots and lots of things that are completely cognitive dissonance inducing. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy and delicious breads, buns and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Become clear, clear as day, I think. That's really well said, and I love it, and I agree with you. Yes, uh, these uh, the Gnostics would say that these mechanistic beings, these egregores, whatever, this other is definitely here to control us to feed off of us we can debate that or people can have their views but obviously there has been some continual trauma-based mind control as you call it that has uh, cut off humanity from nature from our inner cells from the resources and something is isolating and taking over and keeping all the good stuff and it just keeps going taking different shapes so 
I think, like you said, once you take the red pill or the black pill, you really do need to take the black pill like Nietzsche, go right into the abyss. So you can go into the rainbow bridge where you find yourself and your purpose. But before I get into a tangent, uh, Vance, do you have a question? Although first you must pronounce Krivda, as well as tell us what's faster, an African or a European swallow. Then you may speak, sir. <laughs> the ground speed, right, of the African or European swallow. Yes, exactly. Krivda, that's oh. what I, the way I would Yay. say. Yay. Yay. <laughs> yes, I had Spanish when I was in eighth grade, so I learned to roll. Oh, and German, of course, uh, rolls ours too. But um, <laughs> yeah, this is, all, this is all good stuff. Yeah, I was just sitting here thinking, you know, the gods, quote unquote, Yahweh or any other gods wouldn't bother to play around with people unless they needed to they have a need they originally had a need there's something that they they don't uh they don't have without binding and the other thing came to my mind is religion like just look at the word religion it means to bind again so here we are being bound by these religions and isms and and so forth so that, that's another thought. And oh, by the way, uh, robota um, uh, is a Slavic term that uh, was the derivation of robot. It was uh, R-U-R, the movie was the first instance of, uh, you know, it mm. was a Czechoslovakian movie. Wow. So you were right. Yeah, that's that's where that's where those are tied up. You know, and also uh, I was thinking, Anna, um, I think this is probably along the lines you were thinking. Um, don't you think it's interesting that the human body is weak compared to any other primate? Like chimpanzees are tremendously stronger, gorillas obviously so, and uh, we have the mental capacity and power, um, you know, to uh, for you know to develop symbolic language and communicate with each other. But aside from that, we don't have hair. Um, we're not very well suited to live on the planet without a lot of extra messing around like some, some other animals uh do you think that's evidence that we were tampered with along the way to maybe made into a slave organism i i think so yeah it makes sense it would also make sense to consider it in terms of our um our togetherness with our ecosystems uh you know most of human cultures in ancient times when we were not billions and billions on the planet would have existed mainly in the tropical subtropical parts of the world where uh frankly i mean the human body is quite adequate to what it needs to do and i don't see that when we were more multidimensionally attuned to both our own nature and to our environment, I don't see that the environment was so dangerous to us. So, you know, we wouldn't have needed all sorts of clothes and heating and th things like that. We would have fed much more naturally simply off fruits falling off from trees. Yep. You know, I can say this because I live in the tropics here. And I can quite happily, you know, live off fruits. It gives me a sense of what perhaps might have existed way, way, way back when. But Apart if you run from into that, a Bengal tiger, then it's not so good. <laughs> That's the problem. We're, yeah. Uh, we is, um, is that, what's the myth where 
Zeus creates, when he's creating the world, he gives eagles feathers, he gives the lion claws, he gives the cheetah speed. And then he's like, well, I'm out of tools, so I'm sorry, humans. So Prometheus has to say, I got to get them fire because we humans are pretty, as Vance was saying, we're pretty weak unless we can create humans and modify the environment. Well, yes and no. But I mean, you know, the fact is that we in this 21st century have come a long way in terms of actually weakening the physiology of who we are. You know, let's not forget that. We, you know, modern medicine has us believe that uh, five centuries ago or in the Middle Ages or in antiquity, people were wretched. They had these wretchedly short lives and oh, things you're like right. that. Uh, they've done the study. The average Roman was probably five times our strength. Aborigines were pretty much superhuman because they were always, we were always active and in nature. We were, we've weakened as a species, right? <laughs> yeah, we have. And it's been, it's been deliberate. It's all part of the same thing. And, you know, uh, if we start believing that we are weak physiologically, it is because we the main gateway for the trauma-based mind control is through the body. Okay? It's basically, you know, cutting you up, raping you. It's showing you how bloody weak you are. So, well, once you've been raped or cut up, you're certainly going to believe that you're weak and you're going to be in fear. And then, you know, the rest of the mind programming can happen increasingly easily. When you realize that you are dispensable, sacrificable, what have you, um, yes, you're going to start believing that you are weak and you're going to start believing that you need all those tools and you need more and more effective tools to be able to protect yourself and to conquer the world because you still want to conquer the world because you've got this brain that tells you that you have to conquer the world and have dominion over it. Wow. So there again, what kind of cognitive dissonance is that? Big. Okay, it's all cognitive dissonance. If you start looking into each particular kind of proposition of that type, uh, it falls apart. The human body is so phenomenally resilient. It's just amazing. If you think of all the, all the manipulation that's been done on us, all the people who are targeted individuals, how much shit they've been taking. It takes a long time to kill a targeted individual because we are extremely resilient. And there is a big part of us that learns from the things that ail us, that torment us, etc. If, if we can stay centered enough to use them as learning opportunities. I know it's a kind of, that's a tall order. You know, I don't, I'm not saying it's easy. But our bodies are, if you only look at the physicality of it, you may find us weak. But if you look at how our bodies are in constant communication with the other subtle layers of what we are, we're phenomenal. And animals know this. You know, great sages who've lived in the forests for centuries, they live among the wild animals, the venomous snakes, Fearlessly, if you are fearless, the nasty animals are not going to attack you. They're going to attack you when they know you are weak. They smell that you are weak, and consequently, you need to be taken out of the pack. <laughs> That's nature's rule. But if you can get to the point where you can have that trust in the reality of who you are, and that you are 
a partner of theirs in the forest or whatever it is, then, you know, once the fear is taken out of the equation, and that again is a tall order for sure, but once the fear is taken out of the equation, everything falls into place. And there is no, there's no need to, 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 you know, to fear the elements and the situations and things like that. And it also has to do with not fearing death. That's another thing that they've programmed into us. Mm -hmm, very true. Because when you die, and if you haven't done a good job in this life, you're going to go to hell. Uh, or you're going to have karma endlessly, life after life after life after life after life. Oh. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, you're 100% right. Uh, fear of death uh, is no, it's not being alive. Uh, there is no death. It's an illusion. Everything continues in some way or another, and everything is eternal in the moment. At the same time, Anna, one of the themes that is also prevalent in your book is the idea of sacrifice. And this is a fact that the ancients certainly believed in sacrifice to these hungry gods, uh, children, humans, uh, animals. Uh, I mean, the Hebrews were certainly doing all three, and it's all there in the Hebrew Bible and in the other stories. But yeah, the disturbing one is, of course, children, Moloch. Um, and this sacrifice, as you point out very well, is, is gone throughout history with what we do to children, how we torture them, uh, how we uh, sexualize them and abuse them. And today, of course, there's a huge problem with, again, the, the, the black market and child trafficking and child porn and all those horrors, horrors. But this, what do you think about this? This seems to play very much into the Gnostic idea that we have some dark gods who demand children, the, the light, the undivided consciousness, or just sacrifice in general. Yeah, it's a, that's a constant motif from the times of, uh, from the Mesopotamian times. Yeah, Moloch and, and all those uh, yeah, Absolutely. Gods. And I mean, Yahweh, Biglino shows very clearly in his literal translation, how, you know, Yahweh gives orders for the pyre, the, the, the place where sacrificial offerings are going to be burnt. He's very, very, very fastidious about <laughs> exactly how long and how wide and how high and the order in which everything has to be burnt and um, has to be holocausted, because that's the meaning of the word holocaust. It means fully burnt. So now when people are talking of a holocaust, in other contexts, well, again, that's another word that isn't used the right way. But so being fully burnt, but it hasn't changed. And actually, over the past few decades, and now over the past few years, I'd say it has reached a fever pitch. And um, yes, the gods depend on sacrifice for different types of food, subtle food, and um, probably some, yeah, mainly subtle food. So it would be, you know, the power that would be released from, for Yahweh, it was the power released from the human fat, the fat of young animals and the fat of young babies. Oh. It had something to do with, it relieved him because he was not terribly comfortable on earth in these atmospheric conditions that were probably not suited to his uh, ET constitution. But, um, you know, later on, when these sacrificial things are celebrated 
no longer by ETs, but by priests to their own whatever gods, egregores, whatever it is, the powers and principalities that give them, the priests, to wield power over the mass of uh, ignorant humanity. Um, I mean, the sacrificial aspect is extremely physical. There is the consumption of the human flesh. Um, in Islam, you know, when they have Eid, I lived quite a bit in Bangladesh, which is a Muslim country. And it was just horrifying. The times of, you know, the big, big, big festivals, once they had come out of the, of the fasting of Ramadan, the slaughter of bovines was just absolutely, it was sickening. And, you know, it was, it pervaded the air in a way that, oh. And so there's something about the smell of flesh that's being cut up something about the smell of it you know when it's roasted there's something about the fragrance of uh, of 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 mammals animals and human animals that has really very great power for somebody up there but then beyond that there's there's the enjoyment of the trauma inflicted on these victims because the fear releases energy that feeds the gods. There are many, many levels that they, that they feed upon. And basically, yes, we are just a resource. But what this indicates, once again, has to do with why the hell are they so intent on sacrificing, especially children. And this has to do with the mystery of what it is to be a human being. Because the children, while they are still, you know, they live between the alpha state they're still in alpha state until they're about four years old, five years old. So that is the magical time frame when you can touch their soul. So I think all this sacrificial aspect has to do also with somehow having access to the human soul, which is something that they don't have. I would have to agree on that again for the audience uh, who don't think that the uh, Hebrews did it. Uh, if you're under the power of it, these ancient gods, it was going to happen. You've got Jephthah's daughter. You've got, uh, there's one part where Joshua very much sacrifices a whole bunch of prisoners to Yahweh. There is the part where uh, I believe it's uh, Saul brings the king of some tribe and Samuel, the high priest, cuts him off on the temple on the on the altar of Yahweh so it's all over there and it was all like you say the and it's all there in the Mesopotamia and other places I guess the one good thing about the Romans is that they hated children's sacrifice they hated the cult of Moloch so what that was one of the reasons for their dislike for Carthage obviously Rome didn't stay a republic too often the gods eventually got to even them and corrupted them hopelessly into the greatest war machinery that has never stopped that just was a continuation and through all of this do you so you see jesus as a positive i know you talk about uh, christianity's a death cult too but jesus himself your view is he was an enlightened human well i this is again not me you know i've been i've been using italian sources yes yeah, um, which Okay, which I find very convincing because 
Well, they've been living next to the Vatican for a very <laughs> long time, and they have an intimate acquaintance with um, that phenomenon. And so when sharp minds come up with clear explanations of, well, actually, this is staring you in the face, um, audience. It's just there. It's staring you in the face, and we're going to say it. So Esposito, who is a very proper historian, he's not... You know, he's not going to be an incendiary kind of alternative guy, but he just decided to look at the sources. He took the, apocryph the apocryphals, he took the Bible, he took other historical texts from that period, and he collated and he found the common the smallest common denominator from all of these. And from the smallest common denominator, culled from these different sources, he decided to piece together a plausible story of the man Jesus. And why I loved this particular rendition of Jesus is because he was looking at the man and he was not going for the spiritualization of the son of God and all this. He was looking at what it is about a man that is so extraordinary within the particular situation of um, of Judea and Galilee under Roman occupation and the whole turmoil of the Jewish people because of the collusion of uh, the priesthood with the Romans and the constant impoverishment of the little people. I mean, you know, the equivalent of what's happening now. And so this guy comes up and, you know, Esposito, well, okay, this virgin birth, well, I mean, that was, of course, spiritualized after the event, but basically his mother got raped probably by a Roman soldier. It happened all the time. And then Papa Joseph was a nice guy. He was yeah. extremely disturbed by this situation because nobody had seen anybody with young Mary. So it was very, very bizarre. Um, but at the same time, he must have felt sorry for her. You know, she was probably only just nubile. She, they were not yet fully married. She would have been 13, 14. She was, she was still a young kid. And so, the, you know, Jesus is born a bastard. He's not born the son of God. He's born a bastard. And, you know, I can imagine that in that kind of society it would have been absolutely terrible, especially if you felt that you were different. You already knew that you were somehow different from, you know, most other people. So when he gets... Um, kind of taken under the wing of his cousin, John, the, the so-called Baptist, um, who is from another branch of the family, on both sides, very respectable priesthood families. And John has made the choice, like many others, to go and be, you know, uh, to go and live in the desert and to be sort of ascetically seeking the truth and this, that, and the other. And they, they make a perfect match. And then there is the extraordinary understanding by Esposito of the baptism, whereby John has people sort of, you know, get dunk themselves in the water and confess, in air quotes, their sins, in air quotes. And the extraordinary thing is that they scream their, in air quotes, sins in jubilation. Why? Because they are discarding, by confessing, I'm confessing that I'm a piece of shit at the bottom 
end of society. I'm confessing that I have been, I'm a completely downtrodden, worthless slave. I'm confessing all this and I'm thus releasing it. And the water is being, that is being poured on me is renewing me as a full human being. Now, if you look at the ritual of baptism that John inaugurated like that, you can see how powerful it was in terms of social disruption and religious, you know, and the religious aspect oh, yeah. of how, as, as how, you know, religious, religion keeps the, 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 the mayonnaise or the, the cement of society, keeps it holding together. Right. And so then Jesus, the bastard, he has this baptism and it completely transforms him. And he becomes this charismatic preacher along with John and they both go around and they're having a very great amount of success. Consequently, John is arrested and he's soon killed. And then Jesus has to do his thing on his own. And well, you know, then the whole thing continues all the way up to the great crucial scene in the temple when he turns over the tables of the banksters and the money lenders because the religion of the money god was already there in total collusion with the temple as it had been since mesopotamian times except nobody had acknowledged that the, that money was a god you know that was only acknowledged much much later and is still not acknowledged by most western people who use money um so, so Jesus did acknowledge it. He did say, "You can follow me or Maimon." So he kind of knew. And like oh, you, you, you like you research very well. This started with Babylon, with under Marduk and civilization and commerce. Yeah. So you, you're hundred percent right. This God was was under undercover, but Jesus did catch him. <laughs> well, he had no trouble because I mean, if you look at if I look at him in human terms of the guy who's been, you know, an outcast of society because, because he was a bastard. And he has this total renewal of his self-worth. And he goes around preaching with John, who must have been very charismatic. And he gets empowered by this. And when you have that kind of empowerment, and you've, got, you've been through the suffering of having been an outcast of society, but you've gained your power as a human, and strictly and only as a human, without any trappings of luxury, wealth, ancestry, what have you, just because you're a human being, then you can see through the bullshit. Not difficult at all. And, you know, the little people all over the place knew perfectly well that it was wrong for the money people to be at the temple. If the temple was really about some kind of really spiritual, lofty, a uh, true benevolent God entity. So he was basically, you know, showing the truth. And, um, well, that didn't go down too well. And so they turned him into the ultimate sacrifice. And he's being sacrificed to this day. Every time, you know, people, and, you know, I say this with, full, with, with a lot of tender respect for people's faith, but still, I mean, you know, poor Jesus is being sacrificed on the cross permanently in all these churches where you've got this, it's striking, the starkness of the naked figure on the bare cross, surrounded in general by all sorts of gold and glitter and beautiful paintings and elaborate, you know, especially in Europe, 
where I spent, you know, a good many years of my life. The, the, the contrast is so absolutely stark. It's, it's weird. So anyway, you know, poor Jesus, the man is being sacrificed, you know, every day. And people are unknowingly, you know, playing along with the sacrifice. This has been a really a wonderful interview for the audience. Uh, definitely check out the book, uh, Krivda, and uh, check out Anna's website, Enariet, or books. <laughs> I, I better pronounce it, and I'll have it on the show notes. E-N-N-A-R-E-I-T-T-O-R-T books.com. Any other websites, or is that where the audience should go to check you out? Well, if they want the book, they can go straight to a company called Book Baby uh, that uh, deals especially with indie authors. And um, they distribute to all the big ones, but it seems that Amazon has the book either either in a pre-order status or as out of stock. So, you know, you figure. <laughs> what that means it should be available on amazon but it's not really so the safest place to go is book baby they do print on demand and they ship immediately so you can go straight there and look for in a retort or just krivda i suppose you know you could but i'll i'll send you if you want to put in the show notes i'll send you the link sure no uh, problem miguel yeah yeah, yeah. no and problem at all for those who are interested i've just started the substack page I have because, subscribed, so I'm looking forward. Yeah, to thank you. So people can go and look for me there. People generally have questions or comments or stuff, you know, as they read the book. So I just, I no longer can answer everybody sort of individually, although I would very much like to, but um, I'm working on the next book, <laughs> which is on the solutions side. I don't want to, you know, I, I've done, I, I've done my, my Dante's, sort of tour of the inferno of the different levels of hell. And um, <laughs> I, I want to, you know, pr provide positive input now. So the next book is on positive stuff. Wonderful. Yes. Well, this book has solutions, so definitely check them out. But we are at the end. First, I'd like to say, Vance, thanks for keeping us company. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure as usual. Uh, I think that we heard a lot of great advice, uh, definitely getting back in touch with our true spiritual and human nature, as opposed to what the machine wants us to think about ourselves is uh, great advice. And um, I will definitely take that to heart. And so thank you, Anna. Thank you. And don't be sacrificed. I won't. <laughs> Whatever you do. <laughs> if you see a pyramid, don't climb to the top in the middle of the day, Vance. All right. I'll try not to there. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Anna, thank you very much for coming on AM Bite, and we look forward to your future work. Thank you so much, Miguel. It's been a pleasure. You're really a wonderful host. Oh, thank you. And you write wonderful books. So uh, we met at thank the right you. time. <laughs> Great. Lovely. And thank you. I mean, you know, when you ask your questions, I have trouble. I have trouble following you because I'm listening to your voice. <laughs> There's something about your voice, Miguel, really. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I don't know. I was a singer. I was a singer in a form. I have no musical ear, so that's a problem, too. <laughs> it's not a problem. You've got it natural. You're a natural.
Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate okay. it. Awesome. Well, lovely. Great. I mean, you know, the more people we can black pill, <laughs> the better. Yes, yes, yes. One, one soul at a time, one awakening at a time. Nah, a hundred at a time. A <laughs> it's going to be time. more with this interview. Trust me. <laughs> thank you very, very much. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. In a bringing down the Archon house. And the sun and the moon and the stars shine bright above. In our second part, Enna gets deep into techno mind control, the evil shenanigans of the Rockefellers, and eugenics. But she counters all this iniquity talking about Sophia and her own journey to becoming an organic farmer in Thailand. Enna will share more on Bengali mysticism, as well as connecting more to nature. At one point, Vance defends technology, and it's an interesting back and forth. Yet we can all agree these dark gods need to be vanquished from our souls. So please become an AB Prime member, Red Circle subscriber, or Patreon at Patreon for the full release of The Goddess in the Matrix. Only $6.99 for AB Prime, or $4.99 at Red Circle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. If you find value in this content, please support. Support can be also in the form of shekel donations to PayPal or the US Mail. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to donate via Stripe. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list. Get your popular not today Archon's t-shirt today. Finding Hermes is going strong and so are our virtual Alexander exclusive private meetings that include exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics and a monthly Q&A. If you want to understand and experience Gnosticism in its full impact and liberating secrets, become an official citizen of the virtual Alexandria. I've done presentations on the Sethians, the Gospel of Thomas, the secrets of the serpent Gnostics, Gnostic sex magic, and why we live in Gnostic times, and covered a lot of other sects and their rituals. Don't forget my voiceover availability. I'll bring you stellar voiceover with down-to-earth professionalism. No matter what project or scope you need, I'm also on Rockfin or Odyssey if crypto is your bag. If you need help with all of these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. B. Who? Sometimes I think it's me that is the bad guy. Billy Eilish was right. Here I am, blaming the world, while these reptilians are running it, and I am wasting away, stuck in my own propaganda, stuck in my own blame. They tell us to be someone, be a part of, be unique, rhyme, be fuddled because business became what was meant to be about the truth and the truth never sells its soul okay where am i
Is this planet Earth? Just leave me be. Is someone watching me? Sometimes it feels like I'm pinned to plaque, and there's these beings walking past, staring at Earth's memorabilia, examining all that went psychedelia. I thought I'd be in a dark room, loud tunes, looking to make a vow soon, but the information was censored and intact into my brain went wild from nanoparticles but like magazine articles that taught you wanna be the woman all the guys wanna fuck and the internet girls wanna be be who did did I I want to be that's right as a child I wanted to be and so I still keep the promise to the flower on the sill Where I feel that the right should be spoken for the right reasons rhyme This is my last time This be my last soliloquy This is the end and we can't have a fighter. You follow our rules or you'll be hided. But look, hovering now are you, rope chained over the earth's view. And this will be your last soliloquy as we, before, reptilian lords need to make sure you will not tell the people what is important. Music. What a whack funny thing you humans made up. Don't you hear? That's why we went in on fear. And planted the seed in your industry to comb the masses with immorally. Look at the stars. See? This is your last round. So get ready a welcome to the tank of snakes south. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.